Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatched, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And um, in today's installment, what I wanted to talk about a little bit was I'm just going to call the kind of call this installment called the punchline or the punchline of Jesus's parables, because we know how whenever, you know, you have a you have a story or you have a joke or something. A lot of times, you know, with funny stories and funny jokes, you have these long convoluted stories that the punchline if someone doesn't hasn't sat through the rather boring part of the long convoluted story, the punchline doesn't have any punch to it. It's no fun. It's not funny or whatever. And, um, you know, so you, you can um, tell the story. I remember you know, there's always those classic stories about, well, there's the priest, the rabbi and the Protestant minister, and they all get together for, you know, for coffee or whatever the case might be. And there's the story of um, how. The priest, the rabbi, the Protestant minister all get together and they're all talking about, you know, problems they have in their in their various at the synagogue or at the church or whatever the case might be. And um, they're, they're, the problem they're discussing for the day is the bats, you know, that they have bats in the in the church or bats in the synagogue and bats up in the bell tower or whatever, bats in the belfry. And um, they're trying to talk about how you get rid of all the bats. And and so the Protestant minister says, ah, I just couldn't get rid of those bats. You know, we tried an exterminator and, you know, I paid all kinds of money to have a professional come in and get rid of them. And that didn't work. And the rabbi says, oh, yeah, tell me about it. You know, I did the same thing. You know, we had bats up in the attic here of the synagogue and we did everything we could to get rid of those bats and we you know we spent so much money and hired so many different people to try to get them out and and then they just keep coming back and then the priest just laughs at him and he says oh he goes you guys this is the glory of being catholic i just gave the sacrament of confirmation to all my bats and haven't seen them since Okay. Well, that's the joke. Now, the thing of it is, if you don't understand the background, if you don't understand the background of the of of what sadly is the experience in a lot of Catholic parishes that we get our kids and we have CYO and CCD and Catholic schools and we do all these things to try to you know keep the kids active in the parish and so on. And it seems like once we give them the sacrament of confirmation, um, people think that that means confirmation means graduation, and now I'm done with the faith and I can go off and do other things and. Pursue my high school sports, whatever the case might be, and so again, the real only reason why that joke works is you know it's kind of a sad commentary on the idea that you know people seem to think that once they've received the sacrament of confirmation, they can leave the church for good. And um, again, that's not true, obviously, but it, that's what makes the joke kind of funny. Then you know that the priest gave the sacrament of com- confirmation to the bats, and that got rid of him forever. And so again, if you don't know the whole, all the little convoluted things behind the story, the punchline. You know, if someone just said, you know, came up to you and you you, you didn't know anything about that that dynamic in Catholic parish life, that again, sad to say that it it seems like once we give our young people the sacrament of confirmation, you know, a lot of them just leave for good because they figure they've graduated now. Um, if you weren't aware of that that dynamic and someone just told you the story, if someone just you know mentioned that last punchline out of context and said. The priest gave the sacrament of confirmation to a bunch of bats and never came back. You go, well, that's just goofy. What are you talking about? You know, who would confirm bats, you know, and and so on. And so, again, you know, this my whole point is, you know, you have to go through the whole story to get the punchline of the story. And that's what I want to look at. I have I have a list of about, oh, about a half a dozen or so of our Lord's parables. And we want to look through these things. And um, before, you know, before I start going through these, I'm going to come back to this point a number of times in this particular broadcast is, you know, the the genius of our Lord's parables is they can be interpreted on so many different levels. And um, and the, the level that I'm going to point out to you today on these parables, I don't think is anything unique. One of the things I've learned is in our 2,000-year-old church, there are lots and lots of people who have commented on the various words and actions of our Lord, and I'm not going to claim to have anything unique here that no one ever, no one ever thought up before. Um, but what I am going to claim is I'm going to give you a point of view that you probably never heard of before, or that you probably rarely heard of before, and it'd be kind of nice to be reminded of it as we kind of go through some of these parables. And so um, without, without further ado, I think that's what we'll look at. The first one I want to look at 
is what we call the return of the evil spirit. And this is in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. It's a short little one. And um, I, you know, one of the things, if you want to um, go get your Bible or something and follow along with these things, you certainly can. Or, of course, obviously, you can just listen. But in Matthew 12, 43 to 45, our Lord says, When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through the wasteless regions looking for a nesting place, but finds none. Then it says, I will return from the house, to the house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings along several other spirits more evil than itself. They enter and live there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be for this evil generation. Well, in that little little parable there, our Lord is you know really kind of encapsulating in just a few words a huge chunk of what of you know what we might just call kind of human nature. You know, the idea that, um, that you know, if you imagine someone recovering from a drug or alcohol or pornography addiction or someone trying to get control of their life after um, repenting from some act of theft or adultery or something, the first time the person committed the sin, the person was probably guilt-ridden. But after getting used to the sin, there's no more guilt. Then some consequence strikes, usually the loss of a job, chaos in the family, you know, whatever, something like that. And then the person wants to be free of the sin, and so he or she repents. Now, at first, the person rejoices in being liberated from the throes of that particular sin. But the relapse is, all, is usually all that much worse because the person has, has, has been familiar with this false friend. A second or third act of repentance is certainly possible, but the sense of relief will be much less, or the person will just give up hope and remain immersed in that sin. And again, here I think this is something that you know. Again, our Lord, um, using you know the using terms of you know demons and evil spirits and things like that, which I certainly believe in. I mean, they're out there; they're all over the place. But what he does is, I think he encapsulates in just a few sentences what um, many a you know many a counselor, you know, people like addiction counselors, people that work with Alcoholics Anonymous, and so on. You know, people, these kind of people see this stuff up close and personal every day, and they might have a different vocabulary for talking about it. Again, they might talk about relapse or, you know, whatever the case might be. But the thing of it is, Jesus kind of hit the nail on the head. Because again, you, you, you can imagine someone who, you know, maybe they were addicted to alcohol, for example, you know, they're an alcoholic. And so they go to the AA meetings and they're really trying to get their life straightened up because, you know, maybe their spouse left them or they lost their job or, you know, they got a DUI and they've been remanded to counseling by the, by the court you know, as a, as a condition for them staying out of jail or whatever the case might be. And so they go in and, you know, they, they do their, they, you know, they do their counseling with the counselor or whatever, and they go to the AA meetings and, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous does an awful lot of good for an awful lot of people. And they go in and then now all of a sudden, you know, they find themselves, wow, you know, I'm, I'm liberated. I'm free from this addiction. This is great, you know. And I, I know that a number of, of, of former alcoholics that I've worked with, you know, one of their little slogans is, you know, your, your worst day sober beat your best day drunk you know so you know you may you may be sober and you may have a really bad day but that day is going to be better than the best day you ever had when you were drinking and so um you know again someone you know walks away thinking wow you know i'm this is great i'm free of this addiction i'm you know i can go about my business now and and you know life is great again for me but then somewhere down the road, you know, demon alcohol is always kind of waiting there. And um, maybe the person, you know, they, they relapse, they fall off the wagon, as they say. And they go back and they, they start drinking again. Well, then, you know, the, the, that second condition is probably worse than the first. Because now the person, you know, they know what sobriety is like. They know what drunkenness is like and so on. Or, again, so you have someone that's, you know, they've, um, you know, there's been a lot of good work that's come out fairly recently where they've um, done studies on the physiology and the chemistry of the brain and how pornography uh, affects the chemistry of the brain. And that, um, you know, the, that um, looking at pornography releases chemicals in the brain that, um, you know, tends to, you know, bring, you know, calm people down and, you know, gives them a sense of well-being, gives them a sense of happiness, gives them a sense of, of, of even, you know, kind of euphoria. And the problem is, is that the brain learns, gee, all I have to have to have this, this great sense, this great feeling, is just a few clicks of the mouse and I'm there. And so you have someone, again, maybe, you know, it's a young person whose parents, you know, either caught them in the act or, you know, was looking at their internet history or someone that got caught at work or, you know, whatever the case might be. You know, we all these stories now are just all over the place of how people's lives are being ruined with internet pornography. And again, because it's just like a drug addiction of sorts. And so then they, they go, okay, well, you know, I got to stop doing this. This is bad. This is letting me down a bad road. 
road, and so they quit. And uh, maybe they go for, you know, a couple of months and they're thinking, okay, you know, this is great. And, you know, the further I get away from this sin, the more I look back on it, the more I realize how disordered this behavior was and how it was really messing up my mind. And um, now, you know, I don't do this anymore. And so, boy, I'm a happy person. This is this is done. But then, you know, a moment of weakness. Again, maybe someone has a couple of drinks they shouldn't have had or, you know, someone's had a stressful day and they get on the computer supposedly to check their brokerage account, see how the stock market did or to check the weather or something. And then, you know, click, click, click. Well, I'm not going to look. I'm, you know, this part isn't really that bad. You know, they still have their clothes on or whatever. And then the next thing you know, you know, they've, you know, immersed themselves again in another, you know, terrible, you know, multi-hour session of pornography. Well, you know, again, that what Jesus is saying in this particular parable is, you know, the last condition is worse than the first. That um, when you know the relapse condition is is you know worse than whenever we first fell into the thing to begin with, and so again our Lord says you know the I'm sure the the counselor people could come on the air with me here and they could you know give me a you know give us all a very detailed explanation as to what this is all about and you know tell us about the you know the mechanisms and the triggers and so forth that fire all this stuff, but our Lord has given it to us already here in a very concise form. But again, it doesn't go into a whole lot of detail, but he certainly hit the high points. And so, again, kind of the punchline of this thing is, you know, that the, the last condition is worse than the first. But we wouldn't understand that without the beginning part of that particular parable when he talks about the demon being chased out. And then he wants to come back to where he used to live and he finds the place all swept and clean. In other words, the person has repented. You know, they've probably been to some counseling or they've, you know, they've been to confession and they're trying to straighten their life up. And he figures, well, I can't, you know, he's not going to welcome me back here. So they go back and get, de- you know, demons that are worse than themselves. And they bring those demons back, and then it causes all kinds of problems. So again, I mean, that's kind of that that, that punchline there, uh, the return of the evil spirit. You know, then um, you know, if we go to the Gospel of Saint Luke, and this is in chapter ten, and um, this this is the one of um, Saint Luke's. I think this is probably the second most beloved parable that we have in all the Bible from all of Jesus' parables. Second most beloved is the parable of the um, of the Good Samaritan. And um, I think the first most beloved one is the parable of the prodigal son, and we'll get to that one too. But for now, let's look at the, let's look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because um, again, that's one of the ones I think that we think we're all pretty familiar with. And you know, we, we all get all, you know, we get, we get all, get the sense of you know, righteous indignation about the Levite and the priest walking by the guy that was beat up. But um, since we have the glory here of Catholic Radio, we have a little bit of time. Um, let's just go ahead and look at that story again. And then um, I think I'll just read through it and then we'll kind of go back and pick it apart a little bit. So it says, just then a lawyer stood up to Jesus and said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said that, and, and Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How, what do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your hope, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And, he, and Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus. Now here's where the parable starts, and it's actually very short. He asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell in with the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on to the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, or two silver coins, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in with the hands of the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said to him, Then you go and do likewise. So that's, again, that's the story of the Good Samaritan. And I think, again, when we read this, the part that really kind of, you know, gets us all, you know, gets us to bristling and everything is when it says, now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite came to the place and passed by on the other side. Because, you know, that really kind of fits, you know, the, the, the kind of the media narrative of our times. You know, the, the religious people, especially professional religious people, you know, like priests and ministers and things like that, are basically at heart a bunch of hypocrites. And, um, you know, they say all kinds of nice things on Sunday, but they themselves 
don't want to, you know, get out there and, you know, be with people and, you know, deal with the with the nastiness of human life. Well, but the thing of it is, you know, Jesus isn't dumb. And, and it says it says a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's pretty significant because evidently I've never been there, but I've seen pictures and I've heard I've heard narratives where the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is very windy. It's very uh, like a snake, you know, lots of bends and curves. And also, it, it's, it's kind of in a low area, and on the on either side of the road, you know, there are rocks and cliffs and things like that, and outcuttings of rock, where people could hide. And the, and the Jerusalem to Jericho Road was notorious back in the days of Jesus for, you know, people getting held up. You'd be walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and people would be hiding in the rocks, and they'd stop you and beat you up and take your money or take whatever it was you had. And so... Evidently, also one of the favorite tricks of the robbers back in those days was to have a guy, you know, lay on the side of the road like he himself had been robbed or something bad had happened to him, you know, playing on people's um, good nature and have someone come in and say, oh, gee, pal, can I help you out here? And then his buddies come out from behind the rocks and then beat you up and take your stuff. You know, to this very day, we see the same thing on I-70. What does the Highway Patrol tell us? The Highway Patrol says, look, if you see somebody on the side of the road and they have problems, you get on your cell phone, call 911 and call us and we'll take care of it. Because the Highway Patrol knows, and of course, I'm, I imagine probably any savvy traveler knows, that a lot of times, you know, people will, you know, a lot of times people really need help. You know, they, they really did throw a fan belt. They really did blow a radiator hose or get a flat tire or something. But a lot of times, you know, they're saying that one of the things that people will do is they'll stop on the side of the road and pop their hood open. And again, playing on people's good nature, you know, some of the things, I'm going to stop and help this guy out. And you stop and you find out that there's nothing wrong with his car at all, um, but he's going to conk you on the head and take your keys and your wallet and your car and then go on down the road. And so even in our own times, you know, we have highwaymen, as they're called, you know, robbers that, that, you know, hang out on the highways. And so that's why the Highway Patrol tells us, you know, don't be a good Samaritan. You know, even though we're supposed to be good Samaritans, you know, be a good Samaritan and call us and let us take care of it. And that way, you know, we don't have those things happening. So that's the first reason, you know, the priest and the Levite, they've got pretty good reasons for saying, you know, I don't think I want to stop and help this guy because his buddies are probably over there on the rocks and they're going to come out and get me. The other thing is, is that according to the law of Moses, you know, the priest and the Levite, their jobs you know, was basically to supervise and offer the sacrifices. You know, they would be going to the temple to do their job, to, to do their function as you know, offering sacrifice in the temple. And the book of Leviticus says that if they come in contact with human blood or if they come in contact with a, with a dead person, then they're ritually impure for seven days. In other words, they would not be able to do their job. And you figure, well, that's, that's that stupid old Jewish law, and that's pretty nitpicky. Well, let's just kind of transfer the whole thing over here to Ellis County and see what you think about this. You know, imagine one of your Hayes pastors. It could be, you know, me or the pastor of St. Nick's or Immaculate Heart or whatever the case might be. And your daughter has decided she wants to get married at St. Mary's in Ellis because St. Mary's Church in Ellis is a very pretty church inside. And so maybe your daughter thinks, well, she wants to get married there. And they make all the necessary arrangements with the pastor over there and everything. And so, yep, they're all set. They're going to go get married at the church in Ellis. And so, you know, your pastor from here in Hayes um, on the wedding day is driving over to Ellis to go, you know, do your daughter's wedding. And the wedding starts, you know, promptly at, I don't know, two o'clock, whatever. And so the priest thinks, well, if I leave here at, you know, one thirty, you know, or one fifteen, I'll get there in plenty of time. It's only a 15 minute drive to Ellis. I'll be there in plenty of time. And so off he goes, say on old 40. And so we're driving down old 40, you know, the priest from Hayes is driving down old 40. And lo and behold, he comes across, you know, there's some old lady out there. And, and you know, you can see that her car is, you know, the tire is all blown out and everything. And so the priest figures, well, I better stop and help her out. And so he stops and helps her. And, um, you know, it turns out, you know, that um, there was a little bit more wrong with the car than just the tire. You know, maybe the, the rear end went out or something like that. And so it's a Saturday and, you know, trying to get someone to come out to look at it's kind of hard. And so you're you're waiting and waiting and waiting. And um, again, you don't want to leave, you know, the father, the priest doesn't want to leave the old lady out there by herself. And so he waits until, you know, um, you know, some other help shows up and maybe one, you know, a person from the lady's family, maybe one of her kids shows up or whatever. But. You know, he's 20 minutes late for your daughter's wedding or he's 20 minutes late for your wedding. Now, whenever he shows up late for the wedding and, you know, he says, well, you know, there's this little old lady here on old 40 and her car, you know, broke down and I had to stop and help her out. And I didn't want to leave her there by herself until, you know, help showed up and everything. 
are the people most intimately involved with the wedding, namely the bride and her family, are they going to go, well, that sure was good of Father to stop, or are they going to be mad? You know, he ruined our wedding. Now we're 20 minutes late getting to the reception, and we were going to have these little, you know, sorbets for the guests, and they're half melted, and yada, yada, yada. You see what I'm saying? And so the thing it is, you know, when Jesus talks about the priest and the Levite, he's not framing these guys up to be religious hypocrites. They had pretty good reasons for walking by this guy, okay? The first good reason was, was that how do they know that he's not a highwayman? How do they know that, you know, he's not, he, one of his, you know, his helpers aren't hiding out in the, in the, in the rocks somewhere, and they're going to, you know, conk the priest or a Levite and, you know, beat him up and take their stuff or whatever. And secondly, you know, the priest and Levite, it's their job. They're going to Jerusalem to do their job. And if they come in contact with blood or with a dead body, assuming the guy might have been dead, then, you know, they can't do their, they can't do their duties for a week. And there's, you know, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem counting on them to do their duty. And so, again, I think if we just kind of, you know, think of that in terms of a priest being late for a wedding because he helps somebody else out and just ask ourselves, well, how is the wedding family going to, you know, how are they going to react to that? I think it'd be the rare family that would say, hey, you know, great, Father stopped and helped that person out. I think instead they're probably going to be pretty upset that their wedding was inconvenient somehow. And so, again, we can see then that, again, the story of, of the Good Samaritan, you know, there's a lot more going on there than just what it looks like on the surface. The geniuses of Jesus' parables that they're so realistic. You know, he, he touches on these various aspects of human life. And so, you know, then, of course, when the Samaritan stops and helps him, you know, Jesus' point to the master of the law that asks him, well, what do I have to do to get to heaven? And Jesus says, well, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, then who's my neighbor? The whole purpose of the Good Samaritan story is my neighbor is whoever needs my help right now. And but but again, I think it really kind of challenges everybody, you know, kind of the punchline of this whole story is, is it challenges everybody. You know, the, if, if somebody that we know, if anybody stops and is a good Samaritan to someone, you know, we all need to rejoice in that, even if it inconveniences me somehow. And even if, you know, I was waiting for somebody to come and pick me up and they got sidetracked because somebody needed help and they had to stop and help them. And then, you know, I'm inconvenienced by that. But then I find out that, well, my inconvenience, my extra 15 or 20 minutes wait was because this person was helping someone. My natural you know, response, my natural reflex as a Christian should be I should be happy about this. I shouldn't be mad about it. And so, again, you know, we can kind of see the punchline there is that it's a little bit more um, significant than just going, oh, those religious hypocrites. There's a lot more going on there. OK, the other one, and we're not doing these in any particular order. The other one I want to look at here is, is the, the, the story of what's called the story of the unjust steward. We find that in the Gospel of St. Luke in chapter 16. And this is one of the ones that whenever I first heard this when I was a little kid, I thought this is really strange because it almost looks like um, Jesus is, is congratulating somebody for being dishonest. But as again, as we say, you know, the punchline, there's a little bit more here than what meets the eye. And so um, let's take a look and see what this one says. This is chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. So you see, it's not very long. So Jesus says, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said, What is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your management, because you can no longer be manager to my goods. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking a position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people will welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? And he answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Sit down, take your bill, quickly, and make one for fifty. Then he asked another, How much do you owe? And he responded, A hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of the light. And that's basically the parable. Actually, it's only verses 1 through 8. And so, again, whenever you first look at that, you're going, wait a minute. You know, since when does Jesus congratulate people or does Jesus, you know, commend people for being dishonest? We, you know, we're supposed to, you know, tell the truth and everything. Well, again, there's a little bit more here than what meets the eye. 
Because for one thing, see, back in those days, if you had someone who was working for somebody else and, the, you know, this guy would come up and so maybe the, you know, the deal was the guy had, you know, borrowed 50 jugs of olive oil from the master. And so whenever he sits down to write the bill up and everything, the manager would say, well, you owe 100. And the other 50 jugs of olive oil was the manager was the manager's take. And so, you know, again, it, it might have been dishonest or maybe just the way business was done back then. Or it's the same thing. How much you owe? We use 100 containers of wheat. Take your bill and make it for 80. Well, the 80 is probably what the guy really owed. And so the manager, really what he's doing is he's just giving up his commission. But nonetheless, so, you know, we, we look at this, we think, well, but still then, why is Jesus, you know, telling a parable that congratulates this guy on doing something that, at least on the surface, looks dishonest? Well, at the end, you have the punchline. And see, again, this is one of the deals where if Jesus would have just kind of tried to make the point, it maybe not, it may, might not have stuck. But the punchline is this. When he says the children of this age um, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of the light. So who are the children of this age and who are the children of the light? The children of this age are the worldly people. The children of the light are the spiritual people, are the, you know, the, the, the believers, the religious people, and so on. And um, what Jesus is saying here is it, it's, it's kind of a, an indictment on us so-called religious people. Because when you look at the children of this age, you know, in our own times, let's look in our own times right now. Look at the people that push the abortion agenda, the gay marriage agenda, um, you know, the people that want to get um, contraceptives now in, even in the junior highs, you know, the people that want the morning after pill, you know, that abortifacient drug, you know, they want that to be able to just be sold over the counter like a roll of lifesavers. And you look at all this stuff and they go, how do they get this insane stuff pushed through? You know, how do we get to a point, you know, I just saw a thing the other day, of course, that comes out of the media, so you don't know if it's true or not, but they're claiming that 64% of Americans now think that gay marriage is okay, now that we've had it for a couple of years. And you go, well, how do we get there? Because the children of this age are more shrewd. That is to say, you know, the gay marriage people, the abortion people, the contraceptives in the hands of teenage people, these people, you know, they are very tenacious. They know what they want and they're going for it. And they, you know, they, they believe so strongly in what they're doing and in what they want. They know how to just kind of force themselves into, they wedge themselves, you know, into school boards. They wedge themselves into, you know, to um, um, legislative meetings and caucuses and things like that. And um, wedge themselves even up into the Supreme Court, for goodness sake, and, um, and are able then to get what they want. Because, you know, you stop and think, you know, when, when how, you know, the, the, the people of the, the children of the light, the religious people, you know, how, we, you know, we sit back and we let this stuff, we let, the, we let these things just, they, they walk all over us left and right and we just take it. You know, why don't we stand up and push back? When people were just dismayed about, you know, gee whiz, how did, how did we go from, you know, most people in this country thinking that, you know, sexual acts between two people of the same sex are an abomination, you know, that it was sickening, that it was, you know, that it was perverted and disgusting, to where now you got over half the people think that gay marriage and the associated, you know, sexual activity that goes along with it, you know, they're okay with that. Well, how did that happen? Well, the obvious answer is, is, you know, sodomy means a lot more to the gay community than virtue means to us religious people, supposedly. I mean, that's what it looks like on the surface, and that's what Jesus is complaining about in this particular parable. That, the, you know, the children of this generation, the children of the earth, you know, earthly people are more, are, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the children of the light. And um, so, again, I mean, that's kind of the punchline of that particular parable in, in that our Lord is, is, you know, kind of challenging us. It's like, look, why aren't we out there? Why aren't the Christians out there, you know, at the, you know, at the legislative conferences? And, you know, why don't we get ourselves pushed into the, you know, into the, the local um, school board and things like that? I remember, um, I think it was, it, was after, it was after some kind of a legislative defeat for what I call the Unholy Alliance. And the Unholy Alliance is, you know, the National Organization for Women, the, you know, the, um, the, the abortion crowd, the gay marriage crowd, you know, all these kind of people. You know, the, the, the American Civil Liberties Union, the National Education Association, all those folks all kind of collude together. And, um, and they had lost something pretty big. I forgot what it was. And there's some woman on the radio, and she says, look, she goes, all you have to do is go into, any, go into these little small towns and get yourself elected to the school board. That's where it all starts. 
And, you know, I mean, she just kind of tipped her hand there. That, that's basically the, the, the playbook of the children of this generation. Go in, get yourself elected to the local school board, and then you can just kind of start feeding this stuff in little by little. You know, we'll, we'll take away Christmas and call it winter holiday. You know, and you know, we'll, we'll take away being off on, on Easter Monday, you know, celebrating our Lord's resurrection. You know, we'll take that holiday away, and now we'll celebrate Martin Luther King Day or something in its place. And so, again, all these, all these anti-religion and anti-Christian things that have happened have happened because the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the children of the light. And I think our Lord's challenging us there that we really kind of need to get off our duffs a little bit and get out there into the school board, into the, the legislative conferences and so on, and let our side, you know, let our wishes be known too. And again, just show up and make demands. That's what the other side does. And, you know, let the senators and congressmen and stuff know that this is what we want and we're not going away until we get what we want. Again, that's what that's what the feminist group did. That's what the abortion group did. That's what the gay marriage group did. And there's no reason to say it wouldn't work with us. I mean, all we got to just be, be tenacious and show up and say we're not leaving until we get what we want. I think that's what our Lord means by that little particular parable there. So that pretty much does it for the first half of the program. We'll take a little break now and hear from the folks that sponsor our programming here. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. Hey gang, we are back, and I am Father Fred Gatchett, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and also part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School, also here in Salina, where I teach sophomores Old and New Testament, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Um, again, just to kind of um, back up over a little bit of what we talked about in the previous um, segment of the program, we're talking today about what I call the punchline. And it's the punchline of Jesus's parables. And that is, you know, Jesus tells these long, sometimes somewhat convoluted parables to get to a point at the end. And, um, and the, the point at the end is, is, is um, illustrated in by the, by the story that comes before it. And my point with this particular story, with this particular um, double-edged sword program is that I think a lot of times we look at these stories, like when we looked at the story of the Good Samaritan, and we think, well, that's a story about that hypocritical priest and Levite who wouldn't help the Good Samaritan. And it's like, well, there's a little bit more to it than that. You know, I mean, Jesus' parables can be interpreted on a number of different levels. And, um, and so that's what we're doing. We're looking at some of these parables, and we're kind of looking at the punchline. And again, as I said, as I said at the intro to this particular broadcast, I'm not claiming to have anything new here. I'm sure there are smart people and commentators, you know, people like St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine have written lengthy commentaries on Scripture. And, um, and I'm sure that there are smarter people than me that have come up with these same conclusions. But these are things that I just haven't heard in my 55 years and um, things that I think that maybe you haven't heard either. And so we're going to kind of take a look at these. Um, the next the next one I want to talk about also comes from Luke 16, and it's the rich man and Lazarus. And again, if you know this story by name, um, you're probably thinking, okay, yeah, this is a story about that rich guy that wouldn't help the poor guy out, and because the you know the rich guy didn't help him, he's in hell, and the poor guy's in heaven, and so the rich guy got his. Well, you know, yeah, there's a certain element to that in it, but I think there's a little bit more, and um, and this thing has a really good punchline at the very end. And so, again, just to kind of refresh our memories, this is um, Luke 16, chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And so, again, it's a fairly short thing, but let's just go ahead and listen to it one more time. Jesus says, There is a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously each day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Dogs would even come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to, to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. 
Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner received evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, nor can anyone pass from there to us. The rich man said, Then, Father, I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, so that's how that story goes. Now, we look at that story, and again, I think on the surface, most people would look at that and say, well, you know, it serves that rich guy right. You know, when, when poor old Lazarus was, was, you know, on earth, it wouldn't have hurt that rich guy to go give Lazarus a little bit of something to eat. It wouldn't have hurt that rich guy to go help Lazarus, you know, get some ointment or something for his sores and help him out a little bit. But instead, you know, the rich man was, you know, dressed in purple. And back in those days, purple was very, very expensive. Um, purple, the purple dye that they used back in those days um, came from the gallbladder of a certain little shellfish. And it took an awful lot of gallbladders from an awful lot of shellfish to be able to dye something purple. And so um, purple was very, very expensive. And so if the man dressed in purple and fine linen and, and feasted sumptuously each day, you know, back in those days, you know, the diet that Jesus grew up with would have been, you know, a flatbread and probably some garbanzo beans or something like that. And um, so, you know, the, the average person back in those days knew what the simple diet was like. And so if Jesus wanted to get their attention, that's why in many, many, many parables, Jesus talks about the banquet, about a sumptuous banquet, because that would really grab the people's attention back in those days. But anyway, so again, I, again, we read this story and we would think, well, you know, this is a story about social injustice and how, you know, the rich should help the poor and things like that. And I'll grant you that. I mean, I think that's, that, that, that is one interpretation from one layer of the parable. But I don't think that's why Jesus told the parable. Because the, the punchline is at the very end, it's the very last verse, when it, when, it says, um, when, when it says, Abraham said to the rich man, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And there I think, you know, there's where Jesus is telling us, you know, that he goes to the whole story of the rich man and Lazarus. And if we want to take out of that story this idea that, well, you know, the rich should help the poor and everything, you know, we can do that. But Jesus is getting something here much more profound, I think, in the punchline. And the punchline is, is that he's saying, even if someone rises from the dead, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be unimpressed. Now, whose resurrection do you think he's talking about? It might never be humble opinion. I think he's talking about his own resurrection. I think what Jesus is saying is, you know, that, that even after I rise from the dead, there are going to be plenty of people out there that are still going to be unimpressed. And it certainly ends up being the truth. You know, we know that after Jesus rose from the dead, of course, the apostles, they were sold, and especially after Pentecost. But then, you know, the Sanhedrin, they, they dug their heels in even deeper. You know, we read about this in the Acts of the Apostles, that, you know, they're constantly dragging, you know, Peter, James, and John into the Sanhedrin and beating them up and roughing them up and, you know, harassing them and so on because they're speaking about Jesus, even though... You know, back in those days, the only thing that, that the Sanhedrin or the Romans, if you want to prove that this whole resurrection thing is a hoax, you know, get the rotten, smelly, you know, worm-eaten body of Jesus, load it on a cart, bring it into town, and say, okay, folks, get over here and take a big whiff. You see this dead guy here? Here's your Savior. He's dead. You know, get over it. You know, that's all they would have had to have done. And, um, but, but they didn't. Why? Because, the, you know, the body rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And so, you know, even if someone rose from the dead, neither are they, can, you know, they're not even convinced then. And so, um, you know, you, you look at the kind of the, 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 the layers of, of, of achieving goodness here. Because on the one hand, you know, whenever, whenever the rich man calls up and says, you know, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. And notice the first thing Abraham says is they have Moses and the prophets. Listen to them. What does that tell us? That tells us that, you know, the Jewish ethic of living, you know, what, what the Jews have with the law of Moses and with the prophets and everything, that's a very complete ethic. I mean, you know, you can, you can see that St. Luke has a lot of respect for the Jewish morale, the Jewish moral code and the Jewish ethic for living, you know, that, um, that just following Moses and the prophets would be enough to keep somebody out of hell. 
But nonetheless, so then, but you know, he says, no, but if someone goes back from the dead, they'll repent. And, and then Abraham says, look, if they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets, even if someone rises from the dead, they're not going to be convinced with that either. Because that's just kind of the way we are as human beings. And I think that's one of the one of the things that Jesus, you know, really kind of, you know, calls out here in the punchline of this particular parable is that, you know, as human beings, sad to say, we become very acclimated to things and very unimpressed very quickly. Um, look at what happens, you know, you, you can go all the way back to childhood. You have a kid that's, you know, tell my mom and dad, you know, I want this toy, I want this toy. If I have this toy, I'll be happy, you know, and you get them the toy and they're happy for a while and then, you know, the toy is old news. They're not happy with it, they want something else. And um, it's kind of the way we are. I mean, when you look at what, what God has done for us, you know, I remember one time um, there was this Protestant lady, she wasn't very happy with me for some reason, and um, I think she was just kind of more wanting to pick a fight. And um, it was at a funeral. And um, and she started, you know, going on about the, the Catholic belief that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. And she goes, you've got to be kidding. If you really believed that Christ was in that little piece of bread, you'd fall on your face and you wouldn't even, look, you wouldn't even dare to look at it. And I thought, well, you know, honey, if you weren't so full of, of venom against the Catholic faith, you actually kind of spoke a lot of truth there. Got to have to, have to give you credit for that. Because really, um, what she said was true, that if we really truly had an appreciation for exactly what the Eucharist was, I mean, you know, we, 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 would, we, would, we wouldn't even hardly want to go up and receive it and look at it. We would be so humbled and so probably even terrified at what it is. And now look at in our day and age, just, you know, people go up and receive, the commun- receive communion with the greatest of, of casualness. You know, whether they've been to confession in 20 years or not, um, you know, you have, it, it happens a lot of times, especially at wedding time and funeral time and Christmas and Easter. You know, you have people who have left the Catholic Church. They've gone and joined some happy, clappy gospel good time hour somewhere. Or they just don't come to church at all. But, you know, well, everybody else is going to communion, so I guess I will too. I mean, I've even heard stories, you know, people will tell me, they say, yeah, Father, you know, so-and-so, you know, at that such and such a mass, they've, they've repudiated the Catholic faith. They said publicly, I'm not Catholic anymore. I don't believe that Catholic stuff. I'm an atheist. But they'll come to mass for whatever reason. They'll go up and receive communion. Well, Again, what that what that angry Protestant lady said was true. If we really had a, a, an appreciation for exactly what that is, if, if 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 what the Eucharist is, what we is what we say it is, you know, how many of us would dare even look at the host? You know, how many of us could go to adoration, even look at the host and the monstrance, if we really really appreciated what that was and who that was? And so again. You know, even if someone's ray raises from the dead, you know, we're just unimpressed, and that's something that we have to guard against. Now we're going to go for the mirror. This is the the um, the crown jewel. Um, this is you know, again, I think, arguably, probably unarguably. I suppose if you go up and ask, ask the average Catholic in the pew, what is the greatest of all the parables that Jesus ever told, and they would have to say the parable of the prodigal son. What I'm prepared to argue, though, is it should not be called the prodigal son. And I'm not the first one to argue this, but I think it's something that we have to kind of keep in mind. Because in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, um, actually at the very beginning of chapter, at the very beginning of chapter 15, it says, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now, who is them? Them are the, are the, the Pharisees and the scribes, okay? And so the following parables, there's three parables in chapter 15, and they are directed to the Pharisees and the scribes. And that's the important thing to remember. They are directed to the Pharisees and the scribes. So the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. And so, you know, the, the scribes and Pharisees are complaining to Jesus. They're saying, look, this guy hangs out with sinners and eats them. And Jesus says, look, give me a break. How many of you, if you have 100 sheep and you lose one of them in the wilderness, you don't leave the 99 behind and go look for the one that's lost? Okay. And, um, and so, again, when you have the shepherd, the 99 sheep, and the one lost sheep, these correspond to the three main work, the characters that we have in the, in the, in the, at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. The main characters are Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees, and the tax collectors and sinners. So with the story of the lost sheep, you know, obviously the shepherd looking for the sheep is Jesus. The, the one that wandered off is the, the, the tax collectors and sinners. And the 99 that didn't wander off are the scribes and Pharisees. And so whenever Jesus directs that parable to them, he's, he's identifying the scribes and Pharisees with the 99. He's saying, give me a break. Any of you would go after to look after a lost sheep. I'm trying to do the same thing. 
Then you have the parable of the lost coin. And I'll just read that one. It's only a couple of verses. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I too, there is more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the woman is Jesus or God. The one lost coin is the, ta- the tax collectors and sinners. The nine coins that did not get lost are the scribes and the Pharisees. And so that's important to understand who the whole these things all correspond to. Then we get to, again, the great one. Then Jesus said, there was a man, that's Jesus or God, who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that should belong to me. So he divided his property between the two sons. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled off to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine broke out throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, and here I am dying from hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. So he sent off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him, and filled with compassion, he ran ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it for us. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son, this is the, this is the scribes and the Pharisees, was in the field when he came and approached the house and he heard the sound of music and dancing. And he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then the older brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and never have I disobeyed your command. Yet you never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and has been found. So the thing of it is, the punchline doesn't come until the very end. A lot of people, a lot of, you know, you know, Advent and Lenten Reconciliation Services, you know, will read the story of the prodigal son and people will rightly, you know, priests and deacons and so on, you know, preachers will rightly point out, this is, I'm not saying this is wrong, it's correct. They'll talk about the various aspects, the various details in this story about how, you know, when the younger son, you know, gets the money and goes off and wastes it and everything. And then it says, when he's a long way off, the father sees him. Well, why does the father see him when he's a long way off? It's because he's looking for him. And the father runs to him. See, back in those days, that would never happen. The patriarch, the head of the clan, if someone wronged the family or wronged the patriarch, you know, they would wait probably for months to be given an audience to come in and grovel before the patriarch and beg for some kind of forgiveness and beg to be reestablished in the family somehow. But here the father goes running out to him. You know, so again, many a preacher will say, see, you know, God is just thrilled to death to have us come back and, you know, he's waiting for us. He's looking for us. He wants to show us compassion. He wants to restore us. Quickly bring out the best robe, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. You know, let us celebrate because he's back. Well, you know, that's all true. You know, I'm not going to say for a minute that God isn't happy when people repent, but that's not the point of the story, okay? Because the story is not being told to the tax collectors and sinners who correspond to the younger son. The story is being told to the scribes and the Pharisees who correspond to the older son. And because, again, the older son is mad because Jesus is show, because the father is showing the younger son compassion and forgiveness and welcoming him back. 
the scribes and the Pharisees are mad because Jesus is showing attention to the tax collectors and sinners. And so again, that parallel is that you know the the parallel there is is, is just very very clear. And so the whole point of telling the story of the of the elder of the younger son squandering the money and going off and then being welcomed back is so that Jesus can put the scribes and the Pharisees on the on the hot seat and say, look, you know, why can't we welcome these people back? Because you'll notice here, what it, what does he say to the to the elder son? Son, you are with me always, and everything that I have is yours. All right? What's Jesus telling the scribes and the Pharisees? Saying, look, scribes and Pharisees, you are good people. You are with me always. You have followed the law of Moses. You're good people, and everything that I have is yours. But we have to celebrate because we're trying to take these tax collectors and sinners and turn them into people like you, into upstanding good people like the scribes and the Pharisees. So I think the scribes and the Pharisees get a bad rap um, because really, if you you know, read some of the history from the time, a lot of people really respected the Pharisees because they were good people. They were good, upstanding people. And what Jesus' beef here is with them is they don't appear to be willing to let other people come and join the good people club. Okay, And see, that's what the parable of the so-called prodigal son is all about. It's really not about the prodigal son. Notice we talk about the, you know, we talk about the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost brother. But really, you know, the, 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 it's about the 99 sheep, the nine non-lost coins, and the elder brother. That's what this story is about. And so, again, I think hopefully, you know, we've kind of taken some time looking at these stories. We see that the punchline of these stories is a little bit different than what we probably thought. You know, a lot of times you when know, we read these things and you look them out on the surface and we think that, well, we think we have these understood. And, um, you know, maybe some of you listening today have heard some of these before. I don't know. But again, hopefully kind of going back and looking at some of these um, at these stories, you know, we looked at the Good Samaritan, the return of the evil spirit, um, the unjust steward, the rich man and Lazarus and the prodigal son. We go back and look at those stories and kind of look at the punchline. Look at how Jesus very carefully and skillfully crafts a story until we get to the end. And, um, and that's where the punchline kind of comes in. And that's where we find out what the parable is, is I would say, really about, although the other interpretations are certainly valid, um, because I always say Jesus' parable is like an onion. You know, you peel the onion, you get layer after layer after layer of meaning, and that's exactly what Jesus does. And he does it on purpose. But um, the real purpose behind telling the, the parable is that punchline that comes at the very end. So we've kind of um, wrapped up this episode or this, this installment of Double-Edged Sword. So that pretty much wraps it up for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Thanks again for tuning in. Just want to remind you to visit our website at dv, that's V as in Victor, www.dvmercy.com. Um, you can also call the station at 785-621-4110. If you go to our Divine Mercy website, there are archived installments of Double-Edged Sword and also the One Body Program, both of which are locally produced by our Catholic radio stations here in Divine Mercy Radio. And those are there for you to peruse and listen to at your leisure if you want to go pick up an older installment of one of those shows that you want to listen to again. Also, check out our Donate button because um, there is where we depend on people's donations to keep us on the air and to keep the message going out to these Catholic airwaves. And so again, we thank you for tuning in to this installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio, and we'll see you on the next time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye and God bless.